Hey guys, welcome back to the D Fitzel Podcast. Today I have an interview with Johnny Reps Fitness. We talk about many different topics in this one, but specifically the one that you know I think you're gonna take away a lot from is the prevention and management of fatigue and injury. Alright, without any further ado, let's get into it. Alright, welcome back to the D Fitzel Podcast. Today I have a Jonathan Rapash. <laughs> Johnny Reps Fitness on with us. Okay, he is an online coach and you know I'm just going to let him you know give an introduction of, of himself and what he does and all of the good stuff. Go ahead. Perfect. Thanks so much, Darsh. I'm really happy and excited to be on your podcast. I don't do a ton of podcast appearances, so I and I always love doing them when I get the opportunity. My name is Jonathan Reposh, but you do not have to call me that because everybody has always had trouble pronouncing my last name. You can call me Johnny Reps. Uh, find me at Johnny Reps Fitness on all of the social medias if you so please. And I am a personal trainer, an online fitness coach. I, unlike uh, some online personal trainers and fitness coach I, coaches, I do have a very large amount of experience training people in person beside, before I decided to go into the online space kind of mostly full-time. I've been training people as my full-time profession since 2016. So it's, this is my seventh year in business and has been my, uh, my sole source of income for seven years now. So I guess I must be doing something right. Um, I am a certified, obviously, personal trainer. I'm a certified uh, weight loss specialist. I'm a certified uh, habit change uh, sorry, behavior. I was confused. Behavior change specialist. Sorry, um, I've competed in powerlifting twice. I am, I would say, an amateur powerlifter slash strongman. I'm competing in my first strongman competition, probably around one month from when this podcast come out, comes out. And I train clients from ages eight to eighty and beyond. Whoa. I am big into strength training, and I do have my own podcast as well called Strength for All, which. Uh, yeah, that's just a brief overview of myself. I've been personally working out since I was around 10 years old, and I'm currently 31. So I have over 20 years of workout experience, despite being in my early 30s. That's insane. <laughs> working out since you were 11. 10 or 11. I can't really remember exactly when. That's yeah. so cool. I mean, okay, I, I have a couple of questions just like off the bat, just based on like what you just said. I did not know that you were going to compete in strongman. Like what, what made you decide um, to go into that? And like, how has that journey been? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. And it's a bit of a long-winded response. I hope I'm not going to take too much airtime with this. But I, when I got into being a personal trainer, I kind of have to give some context of everything. I started out being more interested. I actually got to go even back even further than that. In the year about 2013, there was this guy named Elliot Hulse. And I'm not sure if anybody has ever heard of Elliot Hulse. He's kind of gone crazy since then, and he doesn't really put out good information anymore. But back in 2013, Elliot Hulse was a fantastic source of strength training information. And he got me to start thinking more about, uh, less about exercising just to look good and more about exercising to actually be strong. And him and another gentleman by the name of Omar Isouf, who you may or may not have heard of, who is actually lives in Canada, Toronto, I'm very not too far from me. Uh, they were two of my primary inspirations who got me into training in a way that emphasized strength instead of just worrying about how you look, which ironically actually led me to liking the way I looked more. And I feel like creating a better physical result as well when I stopped focusing on only that so much. So when I first became a personal trainer in late 2015, early 16, one of the first things I did was hire myself a strength coach of my own, a guy who was a power lifter by the name of Nigel Morton. He goes by Captain Planet on Instagram. Great guy, fantastic man. He's also a vegan um, and he's a strong vegan. And he got me into, well, not, he didn't really get me into it. I was already interested in powerlifting at the time, but after training with him in person for a little bit and getting actually like a little bit better at the main powerlifting lifts, which are squats, benches, and deadlifts, I competed, decided to compete in powerlifting. I did an amateur competition and then I did a bench only competition. Um, and then there was, a, I had a little bit of a hiatus from training there. And right before the COVID pandemic, I made the decision that I wanted to start training uh, for a strongman competition. Cause I was like, Oh, I could do another powerlifting competition. Cause I was like, it's been like a year and a half since my previous powerlifting competition. Um, I could go back into that, but it really didn't interest me too much because I didn't have like, 
the first powerlifting competition was okay. The second one, I just completely didn't like it all. I didn't have like a lot of fun at either of those. Not to say that I didn't have any fun or that they were bad, but I just, I wanted to try something different. So in 2020, I started training for a strongman competition that was supposed to happen in April. I started training in January. It was supposed to happen in April, but it got canceled because of the COVID pandemic. And it was really never rescheduled. And now we fast forward to now over two years later, finally, I got another power, I found another strongman competition that I am able to compete in. And I'm going to compete in it because I just want to dip my toe in that water and see how I do. And, you know, it's also a little bit more exciting than powerlifting in that there's five events in a strongman competition versus three events in a powerlifting competition in the powerlifting competition. For those of you who aren't aware, you have three lifts, you have a squat, a bench press and a deadlift, and you get three attempts at each lift to lift the heaviest weight that you can for a single repetition. So it's very uniform and every powerlifting meet is exactly the same. Strongman competition, on the other hand, is five events. And at every single strongman competition you go to, those five events are going to be different. For example, the one that I'm going to has what's called, I'll give you two examples of two of the events, an axle bar uh, clean and press ladder where I have to lift three uh, axle bars, which are thick barbells of increasingly heavier weight, uh, pick them up and press them over my head. I have to repeat, do all three of them in under one minute. And the person who gets them done with the best time wins that event. Uh, and another one is a car deadlift where we're actually deadlifting a car on a trailer for as many reps as possible in one minute. So, and these events can be just about anything in strongman from uh, literally they could, they could be anything that's really like a, a test of strength that is measurable that you could then quantify and stratify against other competitors. So I decided to get into strongman basically because I wanted a change of pace off of powerlifting. And it seems it's a lot more like dynamic and interesting than powerlifting is to me. So many thoughts, like in so many, I don't know, directions that we could take this, but <laughs> just how important is it like for you to like have a goal? And it seems like, you know, competing, whatever it is, right, is something that like really works for you, right? How important is that for you in like, you know, staying on point with like whatever it is? Or is it just like, you know, by nature, you just enjoy competition? Like, so actually, it's really interesting. It's like, I really don't enjoy competition. Like, I, I don't enjoy like competing with other people because there's always one of, to me, and this might just be like a complex that I have personally, there's always one of two options that comes out of competition. One is I win and then I feel bad that I beat everybody else. Or two, the more likely option, I lose and then I feel bad that I didn't win. Right. So <laughs> that's usually the more likely option for myself. But <laughs> the, the thing is, I, I'm not really drawn to competition because I don't really find satisfaction in defeating other people. Like I find satisfaction in bettering myself. Right. So in that aspect the competition to me is almost more like a, I want to test myself to see how good I can do. And I want to test myself to not even like, you know, in a macho mentality of like, I want to be the strong guy. It's more of like, I just want to have the competition as kind of like an anchor point to like pull me toward a, a goal to be pulled toward. Um, not to say that you can't work on goals if you're not going to be in competition, but sometimes it can give you the kick in the ass that you need to move you forward if you have some sort of end point. My one uh, other kind of caveat to that, though, would also be that when you do set yourself a goal, sometimes you do get overly fixated on sometimes specific numbers, whether it's like an amount of weight to lift or specific body weight that you want to hit or whatever else that sometimes you lose sight of what the actual goal is, which is for almost everybody, I think who exercises their actual goals are, I mean, anybody who's alive, their actual goal is they want to live a long and fulfilling life. Right. So like, I think there, there does get a point where like, sometimes you do get a bit too caught up in those goals if they are too over encompassing because bring it back down to earth every once in a while, the ultimate goal really is we want to live a long and fulfilling life and you want to be happy with that life, right? Not like, Oh boy, I'm really disappointed that I only squatted 200 kilograms. I wanted to squat 205 kilograms, right? Like that doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, totally. Like function is definitely like important and like just health and longevity is also something that like, I guess rarely gets like looked at when we are always just chasing like, numbers in the gym or numbers on the scale. Um, so definitely important um, perspective. 
I want to like talk a little bit about like just your your idea or your just take on like you know why and you've been doing this for like a long time so like why do you feel like you know evidence based like approach to fitness and maybe even nutrition right is important yeah so also another good question um, and, and also another question that obviously has several grades of nuance to it so like similar to like having a goal that can anchor you or pull you toward uh progress having evidence can kind of like or or following evidence-based practice in training or anything really can draw you closer toward like if there is such a thing and the ultimate truth right like the actual like answer to this question because my perspective on it is all of these like answers to things that we have like you know what's the best program for raising your squat like what's the best approach for losing weight what's the best you know combination of training and diet that optimizes health it's not like so much of and this is why like fad diets like the ketogenic diet and stuff i'm, I'm sorry if you if anybody listening to this follows any of these diets but why i think they're complete bs is because it kind of ascribes to the idea that there is one ultimate true answer and we have already figured out that true answer and the diet industry or the medical professionals or the big pharma doesn't want you to know this secret that's not true like we don't have like a big ultimate answer to like anything i'd like to think of evidence as like following evidence-based practices is just kind of pulling you closer toward the ultimate truth versus like the evidence is the ultimate truth right um so from that perspective it's like if you ignore the evidence though you are kind of by default like moving away from the correct answer or what's more likely to work or more likely to help people not to say that things that aren't evidence-based can't work because a lot of times like things in fitness have varying degrees of effectiveness like let me give you an example going back to the keto diet the ketogenic diet can be an effective diet for weight loss because i'm sure as the educated listeners of your podcast know like how do you create weight loss how calorie deficit exactly if a ketogenic diet creates a calorie deficit, it's going to create weight loss. But is the ketogenic diet going to be the optimal, most uh, diet you're able to adhere to the most? Is it going to be actually like statistically, is it going to be most likely to improve your health? Is it going to be good for performance? And we know the evidence says that like, though the keto diet may be a possibility for losing weight because it generates a calorie deficit we know that based on the evidence it likely is not the best diet for performance it's likely not the best diet for optimizing your health and it's likely not the best diet for even like largest quantity of body fat lost as percentage of your body weight um or the percentage of the weight that you drop so I think following the evidence is definitely like the way to go, but there's also kind of like the caution on that is there's some people who claim they will claim that like, I have the evidence-based answer. Uh, and this is like ignoring people who also obviously cherry pick evidence that fits their narrative, but there's people who be like, I have the evidence-based answer, therefore it's right. That's not really the case. It's like, we're, you're just probably closer to the bullseye than the people who aren't following the evidence. Does, does that make sense? Yes, definitely makes sense. I feel like even within this question itself, right, there are, I mean, sometimes even like the sort of like bro approach that there is validity in that sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes when you take like the evidence to an extreme, right, and you're just going by that and not, you know, even having like, like you said, like adherence, like feasibility, all these different things. And even sometimes just doing the other extreme, which, or not even an extreme, right, the other approach, like, for example, okay, like, you know, like if, like training to failure, like, you know, maybe it's not going to be like ideal for like most of the time. Right. But sometimes if you're not doing that, you're not exactly exposing yourself to, you know, what training to failure actually feels like, and you don't actually really understand. Right. And then that's going to impact the rest of your, your quality yeah. of your results. Right. Well, well, I think a lot of these things like training to failure specifically and a lot of like the bro ideas, yeah. they actually come from a pretty like genuine place of like, this is like what I see works and I just want to impart upon yeah. other people like what works, right? And they also often come from kind of like this like passed down like cumulative dogma of the fitness industry where it's like, this is what we've kind of seen as someone like generally observing or someone who's even been in like a bodybuilding builder, maybe for like 10, 20, 30 years. This is what I've observed works for other people in the gym. And there's definitely, this is not to discount like 
uh, large quantities of anecdotal evidence but by any degree like they will say i've seen this work and i think unequivocally most things like that do work to some degree but the question is are they like is there it, we always go back to like just because something works doesn't mean that it is the best option yeah. or it is the best option for everyone right because another thing to note is also like if you look at like people who train to failure it's like okay we see these bodybuilders who train to failure and they're incredibly jacked but there's a lot more that goes into that like people who are willing to become bodybuilders are probably a lot more dedicated than the yeah. average person they're probably a lot more in interested in going to the gym regularly uh, they're probably a lot more like, you know, likely to be super, super consistent on their workouts. So they don't care if training to failure makes them feel like shit the next day, they're still going to come back and train because they're that dedicated. But for the average person, if they train to failure all the time and their workouts are making them feel like crap constantly, that's going to be a heavy discourager from getting them to go back into the gym. Similarly, we know training to failure too often increases your rate of injuring yourself. Yeah. If, if you're someone who is, you know, like a bodybuilder, it's like you might have a, a long enough training history that you have a uh, an idea of, you know, just how close to failure you can go. But on top of that, even like there's a lot of bodybuilders who are constantly hurt. There's a lot of power lifters. There's a lot of strength uh, athletes who are constantly hurt because possibly one of the reasons is, well, A, they're pushing their body to the absolute limit because they want to be the best at their sport or endeavor. And B is also like, they are just like so insanely dedicated. They're like, I get injured. I just work past the injury. Yeah. Um, for most people though, they are not interested in that. They don't want to get hurt at the gym. And if they do get hurt, they want to know like, how do I get through this? How do I work through this? And a lot of, you know, bodybuilders, they don't have experience with that. Uh, they don't know how to coach people who don't have their level of dedication, but they're still making suggestions based off of that, assuming other people have the same level of investment and dedication into training that they do. Yeah. And even if you might upfront, I would say the number of people who I've seen that have the ability to maintain that for a very long period of time is astronomically low. Like the, the people who are giving fitness advice on the internet are usually people who are like in that astronomically low percentage of people. And again, if they're basing their advice off of solely their own anecdote, it's not going to work for most people. Yeah, totally agree. Um, to sort of change topics a little bit, and then I want to come back to this. Um, so follow along. Um, <laughs> I feel like, um, people and just generally like the idea of like, you know, strength, um, hypertrophy, right? Um, all these things kind of get like locked together, right? And people kind of assume that they are like similar goals. I mean, there is overlap and I just want to like, you know, have your view on that, you know, like strength, performance, uh, even like hypertrophy, fat loss, that kind of thing. Like how, how would you explain this to like the lay person that this is like not everything is exactly the same? Right. So you're talking about, just to clarify, kind of like a, a correlation between like strength and hypertrophy, which is muscle growth. Yeah, because I mean, and yeah, I mean, because normally like most people who are clients, right, if they come to us, right. I mean, it's totally fine, right? They, they want to get into the best shape of their life. I mean, that, that's going to be a bit more like hypertrophy focus. And then, of course, your nutrition. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes it gets taken to a little bit of an extreme if they are like, you know, oh, like, as in strength is, of course, you know, it's going to happen, right? Um, but how do you like separate that, right? For somebody who is just starting out, like, and explain that, you know, if you just want to pursue strength completely, then you need to go down this route. Um, and if you want to, you know, pursue like, you know, just purely like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of topics here that we could delve into, but let me just ask you this real quick, Darsh, do you still get the, uh, kind of like the, the objection a lot of times specifically it's often from, uh, female clients who have the objection of like, I don't like the, I don't want to get bulky or I don't want to build muscle or I don't want to, I don't. And then also sometimes on the other end of the spectrum, you get other clients who say like, I do want to build muscle, but I don't want to get, I don't care about how strong I am. Right. Yeah. I think that might be what you're talking about is kind of some of that interplay there. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll address the second part first is if there's, if there's people who are like, if they're interested in only building muscle and they don't care at all about uh, getting stronger, I would say, 
that's cool. Like that's a great goal to have. Um, I would say like without injecting my own personal uh, experience and opinion into it, um, if you only train for hypertrophy and you never train with a goal of ever getting stronger, you are artificially limiting your muscle growth potential. Now, this isn't to say that if you train for strength, you're going to maximize hypertrophy. That's not true either. But if you only train with for like muscle gain without a concern for strength, you are limiting the amount of muscle you can grow. So in that respect, I would argue that strength training is a part of hypertrophy training, or it should be if you want to maximize muscle growth. On the other side of things, if you say, I just want to get stronger um, and I don't care about like if you're like, I want to be a strength athlete or I'm just training for uh, performance or whatever. Or if you're one of those people who doesn't want to get bulky, quote unquote. Right. And you're more interested in the health uh, benefits of training and or just getting stronger generally. I would say that when you strength train, the result of strength training is going to be muscle growth. But how visually bulky that makes you look for the average person who's doing strength training is not going to be very big, <laughs> especially like the, I always say like the older you are and the more female you are, the lower potential for hypertrophy in general you have. So if you have a client who is like a 55 year old lady, who's concerned about getting bulky by doing strength training, the odds of that being a realistic concern are very, very, very low. You would have to have like the most crazy genetics possible to accidentally be a, get like jacked and buffed and bulky uh, if you're that person in that situation, because there's a lot of guys like I've been training for 20 years and I don't, cons I think you would look at me if you saw me on the podcast, most people would not consider me bulky and I've tried my hardest to get bulky and I'm a young guy with a lot of testosterone. I, it's been measured. It's above average. Uh, and I like, and you can tell from my facial hair, but, uh, you know, I have trouble getting bulky. So Especially again, also if you're in a hypocaloric state, like you're you're trying to lose weight and you're consuming less calories than are required to, to maintain your body weight, you're not likely to gain uh, much like noticeable muscle that's going to make you look bulky when you're trying to when you're in a weight loss loss phase, right? The final thing I'll say to kind of like uh, you know address the uh, another point from this is like how much of your training should be like hypertrophy focused, how much of it should be strength focused. Um, my thought is I, again, regardless of whether your goal is max strength, max hypertrophy, health, whatever, I think you should be doing some of both to some extent because similar to how if you only train for hypertrophy, but you never focus on strength at all, you're going to limit your hypertrophy potential. If you only focus on strength, but you never train hypertrophy at all, you're probably going to limit your strength potential. So, because you're going to probably, if you're only doing like, let's say, for example, if you're only doing squat bench deadlift, you're probably going to start developing weak points, right? You're probably going to have, there's probably extra work capacity uh, that you could have that would increase your hypertrophy in other areas that might like uh, in the future translate into you getting stronger, right? So I don't think it's one or the other. I think they're both heavily intertwined, but it all depends on your goals and you should probably be doing both. Yeah. So you would, you know, combine sort of both like hypertrophy and like strength rep ranges kind of like in the same mesocycle or do you like, like to, you know, sort of jump between like phases of like, you know, strength and then to high, uh, hypertrophy phase, like what's your preference for yourself? So I think you can do both. Uh, you can do both. I think I, I would personally say this. I think the current data on me, like, if you have to do like a periodized program where you spend some time on like strength, sometimes on hypertrophy, some time on like, uh, you know, endurance, whatever that means. Like they'll say like the higher rep endurance, like muscular endurance ranges. Um, I'll say, first of all, that every, every rep range builds muscle. Like every, there's no such thing as like a hypertrophy rep range of like eight to 12 reps or something that's completely made up, but like every rep range builds muscle to some degree. But the idea that you need to like periodize your program into these distinct phases to maximize muscle growth or maximize strength. I don't think that the current evidence supports that. I think you can have a concurrently periodized program. I think you can have a linearly periodized program. You can have a program that input 
uh, implements like all rep ranges and all uh, strength ranges. Um, now, I do think that if you're if you're like someone who wants to compete in powerlifting or strongman, as you get closer to your competition, your training needs to get more specific to your sport. Like case in point, like. I'm doing a lot more like deadlifting, like trap bar deadlifts, because I'm doing a car deadlift for my strongman competition. So that's similar to that. I'm doing a lot of like loading events. Like I did sandbag loads today because there's a sandbag keg stone medley in my strongman competition. So getting more specific toward your goals, if you do end up competing in something gets very, very important um, when you get closer to competition. But outside of that, I don't, and, and I do also like, I have clients who's like, okay, we want to focus more specifically on this thing th during this phase. Uh, like we might have a phase where like, we're going to focus more on volume. We're going to focus more on like three rep sets or th five rep sets or whatever. Um, but, but I think like overall it's kind of context dependent. And if you look at it, if you have a well-formulated program, that's linearly periodized, uh, concurrently periodized. Uh, if you use RPE, if you're uh, into that, if you've heard about, uh, delved into our rating of perceived exertion at all. I think if you put it all, if you look at all of them, all of those programs can actually be fairly uh, close in their effectiveness. So I don't have a preferred choice on any of those specifically. I kind of implement it on a client by client basis and a goal by goal basis. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Um, you kind of talked a little bit just now about, you know, I mean, even like in relation to your strongman and everything, you know, like injury prevention and like fatigue. Um, want to dive like a little bit into this, like, can, could we just start off, like, you know, just define, like de define fatigue. Right. And then we can go from right. there. Right. Awesome. So I, I would define, there's a lot there's like medical definitions and there's like, you know, intra training definitions. Like how do you define fatigue while you're training? Like sometimes you'll see on a program, it will say perform reps until fatigue. Right. Well, what does that really mean? Um, I, I often look at fatigue in, in the context of chronic fatigue. Like what is the cumulative effect, and this is when we get into like, uh, if we can really go deep into the weeds and talk about like the biopsychosocial model of like pain, right? Where there's, which essentially, if you're not aware of the biopsychosocial model, it says that there's biological, psychological, and social factors that all affect how much pain you might feel if you get an injury, or even if you're not injury, injured, like how much soreness you might get from training or how sluggish you might feel after training or how tired you might feel after training. So I would just like to kind of set the groundwork and say that the how you feel after you train is not always a direct uh, function of exactly the quantity and weight of what you are, what you are doing, right? I might deadlift, you know, 315 pounds for three sets of five one week, and I might deadlift 275 pounds for three sets of five the next week. And the 275 might actually hit me harder than the 315 did simply due to the fact because maybe I was more tired that week. Maybe I didn't uh, have as much time for that workout. So I was rushing. Maybe I didn't get enough sleep that week. Maybe my nutrition was off. Maybe I'm just, I'm just psychologically drained. Maybe I have a lot of social events that are happening and I'm a very big introvert. So it's making me really anxious. All these things can play together into making the fatigue experience that you get from training higher or lower than uh, what the actual quantity of weight rep sets that you're doing are, right? That's kind of the groundwork I would lay. When it comes to establishing like what is fatigue, I would just define fatigue as all of like loosely, I would define it as all of the negative fitness adaptations that happen as a result of training. Now, what do I mean by negative fitness adaptations? I mean, things like soreness, stress, injuries, pain, tiredness, like all of the things that you, when you think like I had, like, I feel like negative effects from working out all the, even like psychological distress, I would put that in the bucket of what defines fatigue or what is fatigue, right? Versus positive fitness adaptations, which are things like uh, getting stronger, building muscle, uh, losing body weight, if that's one of your goals, or losing body fat, if that's one of your goals, improved body composition, improved performance, improved cardiorespiratory fitness. Those are the positive fitness adaptations, right? So we want to, when we're training, have our training designed in a way where all of those positive fitness adaptations happen at a higher rate than the negative fitness adaptations. And if you don't, you're in a state that many people might colloquially define as overtraining, which is also, I have a problem with that, but we could talk about that at a different time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. I mean, because usually when I look at fatigue, right, as in I would obviously just, you know, 
from like textbooks and all this is obviously just like a lot of like local systemic, a lot of training specific variables that it hardly really look at like, you know, other factors. But of course, like, you know, we look at like biofeedback. So it's definitely important. But I think that, you know, what you said um, is a lot more fuller, right? Because you even including like psychologically, right? Um, that's not really something that like I would, um, you know, include normally, but it's good to think about. Um, how would you, you know, sort of like go about like detecting and sort of like managing this fatigue for online clients for yourself? Um, yeah. Right. So I, I would kind of look at it in two places that you can identify and manage fatigue. One is kind of like during the workout and the other is systemically uh, just everything that's going on. And I have a great example of myself personally of something happened that very recently that was a very good example of poor fatigue management during the workout. Well, it was probably other, it's other stuff during the workout, And then also after, or, or, you know, in the events leading up to that. So what can you do during the workout? Um, one of the things that you can do is you can start implementing, uh, a style of training called my, my first, let me just go back and say my first, um, introduction to this thing called submaximal training was through, again, a guy named Omar Isuf. And I didn't even really think about any of this beforehand, but the idea of submaximal training is that you are training at a level that is not your maximum performance. Like you are not like very few times are you going into the gym and actually performing reps till failure or performing uh, the most weight you could possibly lift. Or if you're doing like something like a box jump, jumping like absolutely as high as you could possibly jump. Or if you're running, running as fast as you possibly could on the treadmill, right? Very seldom are you actually doing that. Instead, you're often training below your peak performance. This isn't to say you're not like giving 100% during the workout, like you're giving 100%, but it's just, you're stopping a little bit shy of failure, right? Like if you could run eight miles an hour for five minutes, maybe we're going to run eight miles per hour for four minutes would be one. Like I would, I'm not saying that that's a good training uh, protocol to do, but I'm just saying that would be an example of submaximal training, right? So when you are training, I think having some form of sub-maximal training incorporated into your program. So you're not just going in and going like all out all the time that likely puts you at a lower risk of hurting yourself. The second thing I would say is there's this concept in training called auto-regulation. And if I think a great way to get introduced into this is watching a video called RPE explained part one and RPE explained part two by a guy named Alan Thrall. I can't recommend enough. Alan Thrall is the guy I started following recently, uh, shortly after Omar Isuf, who's just been a huge influence on a lot of stuff I do. He's a fantastic strength coach out of Sacramento, California. His gym is called Untamed Strength. Um, and his videos, RPE Explained Part 1 and RPE Explained Part 2, explain this much more in depth and eloquently than I'm going to explain it right now. But essentially what RPE is, is it's called Rating of Perceived Exertion. And it is on a scale of one to 10, with one being essentially minimal, zero, close to no effort, and 10 being maximal all out effort, could not have done another rep, could not have done another uh, second of like a running exercise or a plank or something. How hard was that set? Now, an important thing to note about RPE is RPE is a moving target and it is kind of like an organic number. Like if you get in the gym and I say, I deadlifted 415 last week, therefore this week, and that was an RPE of eight, therefore this week, I'm going to be able to lift 415 and it's also going to be an RPE of eight. No, you're misunderstanding RPE if that's what you think is going to happen. The whole idea of RPE is that you adjust your training variables as per your training variables being like probably the, the weight you use on the bar being the simplest one as per how you are feeling during your warm-up sets during that day. Like, is it a good day? Is it a bad day? Is it a great day? Is it an average day? Having some form of regulation where you can say like, Hey, you know what? I know today I was planning on adding 10 pounds to the bar, but you know, I really can't do that today. The, the thing with RP is it requires like a little bit of honesty with yourself about your performance. Like you can't just like, uh, for lack of a better term, be a baby and say like, you're just not going to do it because you just don't feel like it. Right. It's more like subjectively assessing like where you are versus where you were last week. And it is an art and it does take some time to get used to, but 
the data on RPE currently suggests that it's just as effective as like percentage progression or linear progression. And it's also probably more effective at preventing injury risk. So big scale view, things you can do in your, in your session, incorporate some form of auto-regulation and don't train maximally often. Those are the two biggest things you can do to prevent injury in the session. Outside of the session, um, having following a program that kind of introduces you to these concepts and starts getting you a little bit more comfortable um, with them is a good idea. Being on some type of structured program that's structured, but not like overly rigid is also a good idea. And also being uh, okay with the idea that you can tweak things as you are, you know, performing. Like if you see like you're, you're on the squat program and you're supposed to be adding five pounds weekly, but you see like by, it's, it's like a six week program, you're supposed to add five pounds every week, but by the third week, you already failed a set. That's an indicator that the negative fitness adaptations are outweighing the positive fitness adaptations. Like cumulatively and structurally, we have to look at like where those negative fitness adaptations are, what they're doing, and if they're creating like a larger impact on you than, and they're happening at a faster rate than the positive ones are. And if they are like, okay, maybe we need to make some adjustments on the way your program is. Uh, and oftentimes that just looks like, that also does, does look like adding in like some form of auto, auto regulation, like RPE. Yeah. Do you, do you see like that going the other direction? So for example, like, you know, people just using like RP and, you know, actually because they're not, you know, prioritizing like recovery out of the gym, you know, sleep, these sorts of like very basic things, which people take for granted. Right. Um, and that being the reason, I think most clients actually do want to push in the gym. So potentially no, uh, but do you see that happening also where people like, you know, maybe they don't prioritize these things and then, you know, they, they go into the gym and they can't actually, you know, perform at that level that, you know, maybe that program calls for, but it's not, it's not due to a failure of, you know, everything you mentioned, but, you know, really due to things that they're not doing and not prioritizing that are not training related. Right. Right. Well, so that's one of the things about RPE is I find that it actually opens people's eyes up to the idea, to the fact that they're not doing those things seriously. Like instead of going to the gym and just gutting it out every time. And like, no matter how they're feeling, like, you know, sometimes hurting themselves and then they'll demonize the exercise. Like, like I hurt myself when I was deadlifting. So therefore deadlifts are bad for your back. Um, instead of that, it'll have them realize kind of the impact that all these other variables have on their training and the impact that they have on their overall feeling and well-being outside of just, you know, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to lift heavy, or I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to like work as hard as I possibly can. So I, I find that oftentimes no like you certainly can use rpe as an excuse to be lazy in the gym like you can be like well you know today is an rpe of eight so that means i'm only going to lift five pounds right but it's like okay you're not really like honestly using rpe there the other thing i like about rpe is it really puts the power in the hands of the person who's using the program it really empowers you to like say hey I'm a trainer and Darsh is a trainer and we might have a certain level of expertise beyond what you have. But at the end of the day, there's no like magic rocket science to this. It's like you can adjust your training program as per you, right? Like we're giving any training program we're giving you is a guideline. Um, and you don't have to be so rigid to the point where like, if you can't do this, you failed or you're bad or you're, you're stupid. It's like, no, you can make adjustments to your program, you know, intelligently. And it kind of puts the power in their hands and lets them realize how they can adjust and change their program. And it helps them learn a little bit more about themselves and learn a little bit about programming. So that's one of my other favorite things about RPE is that not only does it lower injury risk, it also puts the power in the hands of the individual who's using the program. Okay. I, I want to also be respective of your time. I know, I know you're going to jump off soon. Um, just like really quick last question. And we kind of really talked about like injury and everything, but you know, like what are your, what, what is your, I, I guess like philosophy on it and like how would you um, sort of go about to sort of prevent injury for your clients and, you know, obviously the other side of things, if you can, you don't have to go into a lot of detail, obviously. Um, but the other side of things would be like, if somebody is injured for whatever reason, right? Um, what then? Right. So it's a great question. It's a massive topic. Um, I don't know if I have a podcast of my own specifically, uh, talking about this topic, but I've definitely talked about it, uh, partially in a lot of my podcasts. Um, 
I would heavily recommend that people take a look at the article by uh, a group called Barbell Medicine. And the name of the article is Pain in Training, What Do? I think that is like one of the most fantastic things I've ever read. One of the most fantastic pieces I've ever read on injury management and pain management with exercise. Um, and a lot of what I'm going to say is actually kind of rooted in uh, Barbell Medicine's approach. Uh, I'm not like sponsored or work with them, but I just think they have a lot of great data and information on this. And also like that article specifically. Um, so I've had a lot of clients who I've worked with who've come to me with pre-existing injuries. Like you probably know, like the older the client is, usually the more likely they are to have like some kind of pre-existing condition or pre-existing injuries that you have to work around or work. I don't like the term work around. I usually like to, to use the term, we're going to work with it. Yeah. We're going to make it better through training. We're not going to like ignore it and avoid it. We're going to work with it. Because I hate the idea like work around, just a quick caveat. It kind of like leaves this mental image of like, we're going to just ignore it. Don't worry about it. Or like work through it is like, we're going to like, you know, just push ahead and go through. I like the term of we're going to work with it, right? We're going to work with the injury. We're going to work with the pain and we're going to integrate it into your training, right? What does that mean? So I, I'm going to go back and give you an example of like poor fatigue management that I was alluding to earlier in my own training. So as you know, as I said, I'm training for a strongman competition. I'm about at this point, a little over uh, six weeks out from the competition. And I had trap bar deadlifts on my program last Wednesday. And I go, all right, I squatted like very heavy before I did the trap bar deadlifts. And I actually squatted heavier than I've squatted in. I don't even know. I might've been the heaviest I've ever squatted for reps, to be honest. Um, and after I was done, I how, go. How heavy was that, by the way? Not that heavy. I was doing like <laughs> between 315 and 375 for like sets of like between two and five, right? Okay. Like I've had heavier singles than that, but I've never really done like volume work with that much weight, right? Um, and I go, uh, after I'm done with there with that, I go to, you know, do trap bar deadlifts because that's usually my accessory lift after squats on that Wednesday. And I go, I don't really have much time. So I'm just going to go like uh, one plate, two plates, three plates, four plates, right up with like almost very little rest between sets. So, you know, the trap bar weighs 65 pounds. One plate is 155, then 245, then 325, then 425, right? Most of the time, because I've learned through learning my own capabilities and intelligent training that I can go from one plate to two plates from two plates to three plates. But then between three and four plates, I usually need to do like three, uh, you know, again, three plates, the, th the, uh, with a 25 on each side before I go up to four plates. Right. Additionally, I was doing this training without a belt. Oftentimes when I'm lifting quite heavy, I will wear a weightlifting belt because it allows additional support and stability of your core when you lift. So, but this time I had limited time and I was being stupid. I was like, I don't care. I can do it. I go one, two, three, four plates. When I get to the fourth, uh, uh, four plates, you know, which would be my fourth set. Um, again, with, I was doing sets of between six and 10 reps. So I was doing this with like maybe 60 seconds break between my sets, which is not a lot of time when you're doing strength training. Like you should be resting a lot longer than this. So as you can see already setting up this context, there are many things I did wrong leading up to this. I was also not. I, I, cause like I did something extra heavy right before this, right. That I was not used to like an extra stimulus that I was not used to. Uh, I didn't warm up as I would normally do. Like I kind of ignored my normal protocol that I know works for me in exchange for doing something different and stupid. I was not resting adequately between my, my sets and also like the chronic effect of my training. Like if I would have like sat down and actually like told myself like, well, what's the RPE of all this sets, these sets, if I would have stopped and thought about it for like five seconds, it would have been like very high. That would have been my response to myself. The RPE of those sets, like my last set of squats was probably like an RPE of like nine and a half, which is very high. Uh, not quite failure, but very close to it. And I got to the fourth uh, set with the 430, 425 pounds, and I did one rep. And literally on the first rep, I hear crack in my back. Oh, no. <laughs> like, as, And what's funny is it was when I locked out the rep. It had nothing to do with like it was because I literally got to the top and I was and I was like, oh, I'm locked out. Go back. Like I was just rushing everything. 
And I was like, I could tell, I was like, I'm not going to go for a second. I was, I was planning on going for six reps, but I was like, I'm not going to go for a second rep because I'm in this busy powerlifting gym surrounded by a bunch of people. Also another thing, probably a bit anxious about like looking stupid. Right. So I go, I'm, I'm literally going to make it look like I was just doing a heavy single and then I'm just backing down and <laughs> taking weight off. So I just, I did that. I made like no conscious. I wish I would have had it on video because I made no in my mind, I, there was no inkling that I did anything wrong. It was like, I'm going for a heavy single. And I put the weight down and I immediately was like, well, that's going to hurt tomorrow. Uh, so I go to three plates and I'm like, okay, knowing what I know about injury management and recovery and also other things that have occurred with myself and clients, I go, I know that like, this is not like anything bad. I would also recommend another video worth watching is a one called, uh, I think it's called, I hurt my back. What do I do by Alan thrall? Um, or I tweak my back. What do I do? Something like that. Another great video, but knowing what I know about injury and injury management, I was like, I know that like, if I set this weight down and I just like go away and like, I'm not going to lift, uh, I'm not going to do any more deadlifts today. I am creating the most negative possible psychological and social environment in my mind that would likely increase my pain experience in from whatever this is right and i'm like quick assessment what would it be the likely thing that would happen from this experience right like it, did i like herniate a disc in my back probably not did i like break my back i mean if i was able to like walk around and move around like i can flex and extend i can go side to side whatever fine right it's just like starting to get stiff and painful. So I'm like, most likely I just like something cracked and like one muscle, like did something to like grab that. And I might've like strained a muscle or something, right? Likely, uh, answer, right. We, we go with, uh, Occam's razor, right. You ever heard of that? Uh, uh, I don't know what it'd be called. It's kind of like a logical thought experiment. It's like whatever solution requires the least assumptions is likely the correct solution unless you're presented with other data. Right. So Occam's razor, I have, I, it requires only one assumption to get to, I probably just strained a muscle in my back. Right. Versus like herniated a disc. It's like, well, you know, if I herniated a disc, like there would be like protrusion. It's like spontaneously herniating discs has uh, happening during deadlifts. It's like, that doesn't really happen anyway. Um, it's usually the result of a bunch of other things. I know I'm getting really deep in the weeds right now. Um, let's pull it back. So anyway, what I did was I just went to three plates and I did like a set of, I don't even know a few reps. And then I went to two plates uh, and I did some reps. And then I did a couple more sets with two plates. It was feeling a little bit better. I went up to 275 or no, it's 285. And then I went to 300 pounds. I did a couple more sets and it was mm, right next day. It was quite sore and I was stiff and I couldn't bend. I couldn't turn. And but on Friday, on my bench press day, I actually decided to do some more trap bar deadlifts. I worked up to three plates, 335 pounds, did some sets there. Um, and then on Saturday, which is actually my deadlift day, I went to 355 and did like a bunch of sets of, I was very rushed on my Saturday workout too, but I mentally implemented, I, I implemented RPE into my program. I said, okay, I am not going to lift beyond an RPE of eight today. And I hit 355 uh, for 10 sets of two every minute on the minute. And I'm getting very detailed with my training here. But the idea, the general idea is I implemented RPE and auto-regulation and self-regulation of my training to not avoid the movement, but to just keep that movement introduced into how I am training in a way that is not too threatening, but also empowering to help strengthen the area and not create additional problems. So then today I got to the gym and I did my uh my strongman training and I got to a farmer's deadlift, which is basically a trap bar deadlift. And I deadlifted 460 for three sets of four on farmer's deadlift. And it felt great. I'm still slightly sore from this on Wednesday, but I'm now five days down the line and my performance is pretty much back to baseline and, or possibly even higher. Cause I was only planning to go to four or 25 there. And I was at 460 today, right. Which was even heavier. Another like, 35 pounds heavier, actually. Um, so the moral of the story is like, if you do, well, read those articles, read that article, paid in training, what do, and watch that video. I hurt my back. What do now by Alan Thrall. Uh, and 
also that when you do have a tweak or an injury or something that you don't really know exactly what it is, one of the worst things you can do is entirely avoid that movement and do nothing. One of the best things you can do is keep doing that because I've deadlifted four times in the last five days. Literally, I've deadlifted Wednesday, Saturday, uh, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Monday for four times the last six days, whatever, six days or five days. Um, and one of the worst things you can do is just avoid movement. And the last thing I would say is also tell yourself a, uh, keep positive thoughts because what would you do if your bicep was sore from training? Like, what would you think Darsh, if your bicep is sore from training? What would I think? Um, wouldn't, wouldn't you think something along the lines of, I just had a sick bicep workout, right? I had a great bicep workout, right? But when we're, we have certain things like back and knee and shoulder pain, yeah, we tend to think like it's automatically a bad thing, right? I just think of it as like, you know what? It's just a pain or a soreness that happens from training. Why is my bicep any different from my back or my shoulder or any of these other things? They're all, um, they're all muscles and tendons and joints yeah. and ligaments in there. Um, why would I do anything different for a back tweak than I would for just like having a sore bicep from training? Yeah, it's true. Um, I think there is a lot of fear that is, you know, just there, just from hearing people get injured and all of that. But definitely what you said um, is going to help, right? You know, people that like, actually work through and like, not just be avoidant um, of this whole thing, you know, and just skip out on training altogether. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's a huge topic to get into. But again, I would, I can't recommend enough, like check out Barbell Medicine and uh, their, their work on, on pain and RPE. And also uh, that Alan Thraw video. <laughs> okay, I am going to let you hop off. I, I'm going to link to like, I'm going to have to listen to this uh, podcast again once more and then um, listen to all the things that you, you know, you, you mentioned and then give all the links. So I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm also going to link, you know, all of your stuff. So I'm not going to waste your time anymore and ask you to, you know, give, give your closing statements and all of that. So just okay. want to thank you again for, you know, just coming on and, I uh, want to wish you like all the best for like your strongman competition. I hope that that goes amazing and she'll be safe and, you know, fun. Um, yeah. So thank you again for coming on. Thanks, John. Awesome. Thanks so much. I can give a closing statement too, if you'd like. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah. So you can check me out on uh, Instagram at Johnny Reps Fitness. It's J-O-N-N-Y. There's no H underscore R-E-P-S underscore fitness. I'm sure the, uh, the links will all be below. Uh, you can check me out on TikTok, which is actually where I'm the most, uh, uh, active at the same thing, J-O-N-N-Y underscore R-E-P-S underscore fitness. And you can also check me out on YouTube. I'm on like all the social medias at the same thing. And then my podcast is called Strength for All, available on all of your favorite uh, podcasting platforms. And hey, one final plug. If you, I, I do also have a free home workout uh, program that uh, there's, if you go to my website, johnnyrepsfitness.com, I'm sure you can find the free program tab on there and uh, get that. Awesome. I will link everything. Thank you again for your time. Awesome. Great talk. Thanks for having me on. Episode of the DFITZO podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please leave a five-star review if you haven't already. They help a lot more than you know. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Shoot me a DM on Instagram. I'd love to connect or jump in my inbox. I'm going to link all of these things below so you know how to reach me. I'd love to get connected with you and help you out in any way that I can. All right, that's it from me. Have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you soon.